It was amazing. Yeah. It was so wonderful. And I, I learned so much and I had so much fun. I met so many great people. And I also think, though, the people, you know, they're, though their fan base was not quite as, like, big as John's after having an HBO show for five seasons, when people heard I was going to Jesus and Marrow, they were like, oh, that rules. Like, <laughs> the people who knew them were like, what a cool move. And uh, and that's how I felt. I just felt like I had the opportunity to go from one dream job to another dream job and get a, have a little different set of responsibilities. And I was just really psyched about that opportunity. Like I wasn't obviously clawing at the walls to get out. It was just that this excellent opportunity came around and I was like, well, this seems like the next thing. If you told people that you were leaving John Oliver to go to like Long John Silver or something, it probably would have been a yeah, slightly different reaction. Probably a different reaction. They would have been like, well, didn't you do some kind of 18 minute story about iodine poisoning and how you shouldn't eat it, Long John Silvers? And be like, probably we did. I might have blacked <laughs> like, it out. I really, I really want to embed myself yeah. though, you know, really have mm-hmm. that full experience. Everybody loves a John Oliver show, but that, for example, is a very heavy thing. There's a lot of really heavy segments and you watch them and like, and I assume like anything else, like just like living that for a week has to kill you. It was a lot. It, um, I mean, when you say living it for a week, so like, I don't want to overstate my own burnout in terms of like, I lived with reading about these things for a week and watching footage and writing about them. But like anything else, like, you know, if you're acting a role or something, you you inhabit that position. There's, there's a heaviness to it that there is not with some other types of comedy for sure. And it was, it, it was rigorous. And the the writing process. I think one of the things that is that I enjoy, but I really liked that while I was there. I thought it was it was like very satisfying to dig in and kind of take these, you know, plant your feet and take these big swings. And but now I think one of the things I enjoy about my new job at Jesus and Marrow is that we get to kind of like figure out how to talk about things with like a lighter touch in terms of like how grounded we're going to be and and get to really let the guys, Jesus and Mero, like, do their thing and improvise and be silly and, like, write more sketches. And so I, I feel like it's been a really interesting education to get to kind of work on these two very different shows back to back. When you're writing something for John Oliver, I assume you're writing it for John Oliver. You yeah. know, you're writing it for his mouth yeah. to deliver and, you know, maybe a, a joke about how he looks like a ferret or something. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Usually birds. Oh, yeah. How different is it writing for those guys and how much do you have to kind of like inhabit that sensibility? Way different. It's so different. Just in terms of like the pacing of things and how much, I mean, Jesus and Mero do, they improvise so much that a lot of the writing is done to kind of clear away the brush and provide like the strongest, quickest way to set them off and running. What does a treatment for a particular segment look like? How many words do you actually have on paper? Oh, way fewer. It's like, uh, it's very different. I mean, it's a lot of like, clean setups and explanation of things. And then, and then it's a lot of like sketch writing, writing, be, you know, beating out pieces for the field, working with, with that too, with the field team on that. Um, so it's just like a, very, and then a lot of my job now as like a, a producer there as well is sitting in the edit and making sure like the show we're kind of trimming down from the, the taping to get everything like really lean, but making sure we're not it's not too skeletal and, and then like working with a, a, one of the editors who are so great on the, um, just making it look really smooth, even if we're covering kind of like jarring, jumpy cuts between things. So that's like a totally different element of TV production to work in. And, and so a lot of the show is kind of like not back written, but it's like sculpted in the edit. Uh, whereas with last week tonight, the edits were like very minimal and I, 
I, you know, I was in the next room with, while they were happening, but I wasn't involved in, in, in those choices. I always felt like the thrilling thing for writing for a TV show would be like just seeing one of your jokes, yeah. you know, seeing one of your jokes. Totally. Land. Does it translate in the same way with a setup like the one they have where, again, they're like improvising and they're kind of doing a lot of the jokes off the cuff? I think the satisfaction is different. It's yeah. kind of like it, – because it, it feels more like – Okay, we're pitching and picking these stories, and it's like a lot of the work done with them out of the room to create surprise and like organic reactions. Oh, they purposefully like isolate themselves from the writing process. Not from like if we're writing sketches, we pitch stuff to them, we get their feedback, we write it, we we're on set shooting with them. They know what's happening but like with the with the stories they like really try to be organically surprised by what's happening are Um, you actively trying to make them laugh we're trying to that's a good question i think we're trying to present them with things that are like interesting and surprising and that that will have funny potential so it's like a very interesting and different process and it's like very satisfying to work on to kind of like get be feel in sync with them and to feel like our the room is in sync with them and like the producers are in sync with them and we're producing the, this show in kind of like an unconventional way but that everyone feels happy and satisfied by it but it is a different kind of satisfaction than like watching a joke that you wrote kill in the room as, as it comes out of the host's mouth but it's also th- there's different kinds of jokes that we're writing for different sketches and stuff and that's very so we still have that element of it too it's just less for the studio stuff are you keeping up with the news in the in the same way that you were before or have you allowed yourself to sort of like step away from that cycle i am keeping up with the news but not in the way i was before most of us are sort of like passively bombarded by the news. sure i'm more like that like there's stuff i know what's happening and as a just a citizen and a human Mm -hmm. but if there's if there's something that is like obvious nonsense i do less digging into it because it's not, it's no longer my professional obligation to like explain the nonsense to other people. So I just have to, I, I think my personal feeling is like understanding it on a level of, oh, okay, that's not anything. I don't, I, I will focus my time on like learning about this thing that is like interesting and like will be relevant going forward. I'm always fascinated with the ways in which people's jobs have them interact with the world. You mm-hmm. know, like for example, like I talk to a lot of musicians that they're always kind of walking around writing songs. Yeah. Like, whether consciously or not, you know, they're like pulling little snippets, things like totally. that in the world. I assume that when you're actively writing for a weekly show, that completely changes your relationship to the news and the world around oh, you. Oh yeah. It soaks up a lot of my energy and attention and like focus like when i'm when i'm looking at stuff online a lot of my focus is like a little less now than it was at last week tonight but it would be like how do i make this presentable for tv because there it it takes so much bandwidth to be like okay so rudy giuliani is saying he might testify but he won't testify and like how do i explain this with jokes and like what's the angle and what's the story and now there's i I do a little less of that but it's more like what kind of cultural things are worth commenting Mm -hmm. on and like is when i when i see new interesting things it's like how do we present it to and with jesus and marrow to like create television but it is it is less like an obligation to understand the um minutiae of global and national politics for the sake of translating it to other people does it make it difficult to consume entertainment just you know purely from an entertainment standpoint if that's a big part of your job is kind of stripping it down i try to enjoy the things that i enjoy yeah and enjoy stuff that's like not that's outside the purview of 
what we would do for work. You're watching World Star Hip Hop. You're on the clock. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 If Which I'm watching, such a weird if thing I'm to watching say, World but, Star, it's yeah. it's because it's because it's my job. But like, no, I mean, I do. I see a lot of, and, and just, even as a stand up, I have a lot of trouble turning my brain off. Even as a stand up, I have a little trouble disengaging my professional brain from things when I like have an experience and and and, uh, and just like enjoying or being in a moment and and not being like, but how can I write about this later? I see a lot of like live music. I think that does a really good job because I'm just like, no, I'm just here and I'm singing along or, you know, jumping up and down. And it's, uh, um, I'm, you know, I'm not usually the old guy in the pit, but I'm the old guy, like appreciating the pit from afar. Back being in the like, room. This is cool. Yeah. Looking on fun, but like re- it's deeply <laughs> necessary for my mental well-being. And I mean, like, I, I think that's really important to have things that that don't disengage you from like thinking critically as a person, but disengage you from like your profession, the the way you have to think critically professionally, whatever that means. I wonder if it's possible for those two things to coexist. You know, we talk a lot in the show and, and part of it is just because it's sort of a trendy thing to talk about, but is generally being mindful. But yeah. I don't know necessarily that absorbing things that way and kind of looking at them analytically in a way that, you know, could be used later necessarily takes you out of the moment or does it? I think, I think sometimes it does. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I do. Not to be sure. Controversial or confrontational. <laughs> I don't think but it's controversial. No, I I do yeah. think it does a little bit. I do think there's there's an element of wherein you can sort of absorb something yes. and compartmentalize it for later. Now, if you're writing a joke at the moment, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yes, that's different. I think there's like I think thinking about and metabolizing the experiences you're having in a like head way as opposed to like a gut yeah. way, like to make it like very pop psychology and and borderline useless. Sure. But, like if uh, if to think about an experience you're having is not the problem, but like. To me, the difference is letting it be what it is, right? Thinking about it in the context of, oh, this is really great for this reason, or like this... I, I'd never heard this song live before and I'm having these reactions to it versus like then taking the next step to going like, and how is that useful to me? I think like once you walk away from like the experience of it, uh, in that moment, yeah. you're like, you're not, you're, you're not doing all the work of observe. I mean, you've missed half the song. Yeah. Or, or like you could be having more experience that you can reflect on later. Whereas instead you are like taking the fragment you grabbed and like working on that, which is like in a lot of ways, it's a really smart impulse right like it's an improv thing of like seize the first interesting thing is like an improv rule Mm -hmm. i am told and (laughs) and you know find find that and and explore it and and i think that that's like a great way to work professionally Mm. like if something is intriguing to me like if i have an experience and i'm like oh i gotta write this down for a joke the initial spark of what was interesting to me about it is a great place to start and explore from but if i'm like out for the, if I'm at a friend's birthday party doing karaoke or having dinner with new people and I'm like and like I'm seizing on things and like trying to contextualize them for like future repurposing as opposed to just like uh enjoying the moment and reflecting upon it and maybe making a note of like oh that's interesting I've never thought about that or heard that before it that feels like the way to do it to like absorb it if something really sticks out make a mental note or a physical note and then like continue having the experience so you have to actually sort of like actively shut off the work impulse you have the DC Samiro job and you had the John Oliver job before so you do actually have like a pretty standard I, I assume go into the office kind of office yeah. job when it comes to stand up and other things do you find that you have to kind of segment in in the same way that you have to like be like this is my this is my work life and this is my 
life outside of work. Yeah, it's more it's more entangled. I think anytime you're doing something freelance, in my experience, you could always be on the clock. So you it, it takes firmer boundaries. And like back you know years ago, before I had a full time job in comedy, I was like I would just be glad to have more comedy things to like soak up more and more of my time. And now I definitely feel like there's the need to be like, as you were saying mindful of like. Oh, just because I could be doing this work doesn't mean I have to be doing it now. Like, I could be having dinner with my wife or even, like, watching TV without simultaneously answering emails or texts about work stuff. It's it's a nice way to give yourself a a break. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where I can get to a point in my life where I don't feel bad on those times that I'm not working. (laughs) Don't don't feel guilty about it. And it's so hard and it's like a trap because you're never going to work enough. That it turns, you know what I mean? Like you can't do it by working so hard that you graduate from work <laughs> unless you retire. You, and, and like the even, only way to do it is to like is to actually like end up at, at the mental hospital, <laughs> right? Like you have to, right? You yeah. have to exempt yourself from yeah. work somehow, whether it's by like breaking down your mind and body or by earning enough money to leave, which again is a trap. Sure. It's like so, like I mean, if you look at any any like billionaire, none of them, none of them retire. No, if it like if Mark Zuckerberg, like yeah. if Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg wanted to, he could just have the most pleasant life mm-hmm. and never work. Yeah. He could learn every skill he wants. He could do it. But it's like, it's not about, it's not about like creating a comfortable life for yourself. At Literally that every baseball player would retire after one season. Right. <laughs> but I mean, a lot of them, you do, you do have to do something, sure. which is fair. But like a lot of them retire. I, I mean, like when you're done playing professional sports, you're done at age Sure. 40 on yeah. the high end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, you know, maybe you like the game and you're stimulated by it and you want to coach or work in a front office, but like it's, it's, and you've be, but you also you've become accustomed to having all that money, right? So it's like, you're not going to just go, well, I've made, let's say on the, on the low end for like a long professional career, I've made $35 million and that should be able to last your whole life, but like you're living life as someone who's making $35 million. I'm edging into turning this into a capitalistic critique, but, but I mean, it's just it like, is right. Like but the only things that we know what to do with ourselves, even when we've made that much money is to continue to work in some and capacity to continue to consume, or to invest right, to spend and, the money. Right. Yeah. And, and, but I do think there is like, a, it is like a capitalist critique and I'm, you know, I am, I'm a person who lives within Sure. Capitalism, but like you're a member of society. I'm a member of society in in the United States as presently constituted, right? And so, like, but I do think it is like you can't win. You're not going to win capitalism, and you're not going to win work. You just have to like make sure that the stuff that you're doing is as good as you can make it, like in terms of like how it is for your life. But I think it it's worthwhile. And, and as I'm getting older, I feel like it's increasingly valuable to not spend every waking moment working and like to leave a little bit on the table in terms of like, well, I could be doing this, but like, wouldn't it be better to go on a hike or sit by the beach or visit my parents? Uh, like that kind of stuff is like, I'm just more sold on the importance of that. I mean, you say that as somebody who's working on this show, you know, has a new book. Yeah. Uh, this is probably, if I had to guess, so it's it's Tuesday now, so this is probably your 19th or 20th podcast of the 20th week. 20th podcast assume. of the week, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, I, you know, it doesn't sound like you're slowing down or doing a particularly good job of not working. I, I'm doing better than I've ever yeah. done, I think, and part of it is because I don't, I'm not as, like, starved for, like, comedy and professional professional development and achievement in that way. Whereas like, I like to be doing things and I I enjoy the work for the work's sake, but like, 
I'm also much better at not doing things for the sake of doing things and making sure that like I create time to be a person and just like, you know, hang, hang out with my wife more and uh, take more if she, even if she's or if she's out of town even for something to not be like, oh, this is an excuse to like book myself till 2 a.m. at comedy clubs. It can be like, OK, well, I'm going to um, maybe have dinner with a friend and then drink a glass of whiskey and watch some basketball while I pet my dog. <laughs> it's like a very nice way to be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also easier to fall into that trap when you have a good job. When yes, you have a job that you enjoy sure. doing, you know, when it doesn't it doesn't feel like work. I would compare it to like a nice pair of running shoes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you don't you don't know when you've injured yourself. Yes. Because the padding is so good and then, then one day you go for a run and you your foot is completely fucked yeah, up. Yeah, I definitely think that I have I have a very fortunate employment situation and have for a number of years. But that makes it harder to not work, I assume. And it makes it harder to not work. It does. But it also makes it easier to not work in that I don't I don't spend all day wishing I was doing something else. And so it's not like when I, when I taught preschool, which I enjoyed very much, uh, I, I got a lot out of it. I, I felt day to day that it was a very worthwhile way to spend my time. But at the end of the day, I would go, well, now is when I have to kick into gear and like write or perform, etc. Mm-hmm. And now I think I have a little more leeway to be like, well, I, I did comedy all day. And uh, unless there's something that I want to do and that, you know, a new bit I want to work on, a set I'm trying to smooth out, a spot at a club that I really like going to, I don't have to like chase down stage time or work on, I don't have to like necessarily have the discipline to like, well, now I have to, I haven't written anything for the New Yorker in a while, so I need to submit something tonight or I'm or like my value as a person is diminished. Was comedy something that was always in the back of your head when you were doing the preschool thing? Or was there ever a point when you thought, oh, this is my job and it's, you know, this is going to be my career and this is a fine career to have? I never expected preschool to be my full, my career forever. I really liked doing it. I worked in childcare for probably 10 years and then continued to tutor for two years after I left preschool. And that extends like back to high school. That was like always my summer job was working at like summer programs and through most of college, that's what I did. And it just like, it it honestly didn't even occur to me to be my job until I was graduating college. Mm. And I was like, literally like, what jobs are there? And I was talking to my parents and I was like, I don't know, I'm just like looking for jobs. And I don't, I have no specific training. I was an English and creative writing major with a Spanish minor. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, not that I wasn't qualified for anything, but I wasn't trained for anything if that makes sense so like i felt not qualified for anything for what it's worth but i I, i'm sure there were other things i could have done but i was like i I truly was like i guess i'll work in a bank like that just seemed like what you did like some kind of office low level office job at a bank or insurance the the platonic ideal of going just like job yeah Yeah. and i know i mean like not that those are the only jobs my dad worked in construction Mm. for 40 years and forbade me (laughs) from following in his footsteps so like i there are other kinds of work that are very valuable but like that that's what I pictured myself doing at that moment was like, oh, I don't know, I'll just I'll just go to a job every day. And like it would just it just felt like a gray eight hour block of my day that I was signing away. And then I would use the rest of the time to 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 write or perform. And my mom, uh, who I had worked for when I was younger, she was the director of a small private school, had said, she was like, why don't you just like go to a get a community college, one community college course. You have the hours to have a teaching license and then you can just be a teacher and you you like doing that. And I was like, 
oh yeah, like it was so smart. So I did that for four years, but I was already doing stand-up and I was convinced at the time that I was going to like, that stand-up was fun and I liked doing it, but what I was going to do was like write humorous literary fiction. Like um, a McSweeney's kind like of? Like a McSweeney's, yeah. like a, um, like a probably a George Saunders type okay. career. Sure. Is, you know, the, the one guy who does that. Yeah. I mean, you've ended up in the New Yorker, so that's pretty close. I've, that's Saunders-esque. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I didn't, like, I thought I was going to be a, yeah. Humorous literary fiction writer, which like I, the Highlander when George Saunders died, you would yes, yeah, 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 yeah. or you know, my elbow Simon Rich out of the yeah. way because yeah. there's just like there aren't that many people that do that sure. like highbrow kind of, and I think there's so much writing. I mean, my uh, my my thesis advisor at Brandeis, Steve McCauley, writes very funny, sharp fiction, but like the people writing books that are like actively funny, there are so. Especially in the fiction space, I find to be like, this is like, this is very hot takey. But I think many of the classics are like hugely overrated in terms Mm. of how funny they are. Like, uh, the one I always rail against is Confederacy of Dunces. And I found it to be like, not without merit, but not (laughs) funny. When people, it's like, in a book, if it's a, also a fifty-year-old book, of course. To be fair, yes. yeah, totally. That, that's totally true. <laughs> comedy, comedy and, does not age well. Generally, stand up, right? Yeah. Stand up you watch from fifty years yeah. ago, you're like, yikes. Yeah, but people are like, this is one of the great masterpieces, right? Like, there's not. It's with stand up or a film. Yeah, you're like, here are the. 15 great comedies of this decade, right? Like, you, you're like, here are the greatest comedies of the 1990s, and you don't have a substantial list of, like, funny books. I, you sit down and chuckle at Mark Twain, for example. You're, no. you're sort of like, you're like, this is this is a very good thing, and I understand why yeah. this is a thing, but, like, you're not sitting there lolling but, on the subway. But what I mean is, like, the, the, there are so, like, we've gone 50 and then, like, 150 yeah. years back to find sure. two landmark sure. books. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you were to go, like, what movies are funny? I sure. can tell you five from the past year fewer now than there used to be i think people like david sedaris for example david right sedaris. he's like he, but, he's in that wheelhouse but it's not do, do you do you laugh out loud when i do some, you do okay. i do i laugh out loud and, yeah. and like there are there are essays that i laugh out loud at like mm. i think sachi cool's book i bring that up all the time that yeah. people are probably who have heard me talk before are probably like sick of it but like yeah. she's such a funny writer i laugh out loud when i read her i laugh out loud when i read david sedaris but those aren't it's not fiction i like i really like memoir and essay for humor you did find the one active niche right now for people who are writing comedy books which is stand-up comedians who are doing essays yes oh you know what else you know what other book i think i always forget to cite this mm-hmm. book but like there are other funny novels obviously don't like come out and be like oh, well there's a hundred funny but it's like yeah but there's more funny other stuff but uh the sellout by paul Beatty is okay. so funny it's it's like laugh out loud funny and it's like really incisive and it's, you know, maybe in 100 years people will not feel that way. But like right now mm-hmm. it is super relevant and super funny and, and super creative in a way that's more than like, huh, that's like yeah. so much of when people say it like a book is funny. It's like, huh. And it's like, okay, like, okay, Portnoy's complaint. Someone <laughs> jerked off. Like I just like get so flustered about that stuff. And I don't mean to, like, go yeah. off on a cranky Andy Rooney tangent. Yeah. Was Portnoy's complaint ever funny? People it was shocking. say it's funny. Yeah. People have sold it to me as, like, yeah. it's a great comic novel. What I will say about people like Philip Roth yes. and Norman Mailer and John Updike, you know, Portnoy's complaint is probably the best example of this. Or um, I had a Jewish grandfather 
with who had all these books on his shelf. Yep. And I remember just like sitting in his in Encino, California, sitting in his um, office and seeing all these like hoity toity books on his shelf, these great works of literature, and then opening up and reading it and just being like, holy shit, grandpa. Yeah. I can't believe this was a thing yes, that you were for reading. For sure. Yeah. I th- I, and, and I don't mean that there's only merit in literature that is like laugh out loud funny from wire to wire when you think about stand-up comedian being kind of implausible or uncommon career path i think like humorous novelist there are probably fewer like there are more people working in like live comedy and television comedy than there are like writing very funny novels through this sort of very circuitous route you have again found the one really active place in the publishing world where people are doing humor books. It seems like probably 95% of humor books right now, other than Urban Outfitter, Coffee sure, Table sure, sure. are essay collections by yeah. stand-up comedians. I, I, I love a good essay collection. I like reading them. I like writing essays. I think it's like a really cool medium. I think like sometimes the personal essay is like maligned, but I think it's really like lovely. And it's also, I gravitate so much towards stand-up comedy as a form that like this is a differently... I think it's a way to scratch a similar itch mm. where like you're hearing people be open and vulnerable and funny and, and like pro- talk about potentially really heavy things with a really light touch. And so I, re- I enjoy that so much. It must be the most isolated thing that you do professionally versus going out on stage or writing in a writer's room. Yeah, it is very isolating and it drives me a little bit bonkers to, to have worked on a, like working on a book was very hard given my professional proclivities in that I've worked in late night TV where you're in a room and mm-hmm. you do a show and it's done at the end of the week or you're working on something like for a few weeks down the line, but like you still are doing a show every week or you're doing stand up and you have an idea and you do it and you go, Oh, you know what? I can, I can work with this or like this is, this is better than I thought or like, Ooh, this was real garbage. You really blew it brain. But with a book, you're, you know, you're working with like doing so much work before anyone sees it. Like even before your editor sees it, before your readers see it, like that are, you know, friends and family readers see it. It is, it's so much just writing kind of in the dark. Yeah. And that was really a challenging experience and a rewarding experience, but a tough one. I like when we set out the kind of timeline for the book, I sat down my agent Noah and my editor Stephanie, who are wonderful. And I was like, Please let me send you chunks of this book. Even if you don't give me notes, right? Let me like pretend that I have deadlines. Liberate me from the tyranny of working on this one chunk. Yes. Let me send you, even though I know I should be doing like so many X words per week, uh, X words per month. Please let me pretend that I owe you 20,000 words every three months or something. And then, and I will, even if I'm behind on that deadline, it will be but I will send you stuff when I finish and it will be better for me psychologically than just like having it sit on my computer. Like, I don't know, like fermenting <laughs> and, uh, and turning into kombucha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but it was like a very cool, rewarding experience. And, and my, my editor, Stephanie was amazing. Truly, uh, like a, an incredibly thoughtful and skillful collaborator who has worked on different kinds of books. Like I, I know she's done a bunch of business titles, mm. um, but didn't w- so wonderfully like helped me make my book the best version of it that it could be without being like, but what if it was more like this other thing that I have a lot of experience with, which is like, that's such a hard 
yeah. way to give notes. Like I struggle with it all the time on my, on my own, right? If somebody asks me for advice, I, I don't know who said this first, but like they always give you the advice that like, or you always give the advice that you of how to do it your way, basically. And I, 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 it's hard to step outside of that. But I think she did an amazing job. This was that one aspect of your professional life in the moment where it like really was your your mm-hmm. pure voice and it, and it should be versus, you know, after years of writing for other people so yeah. much, this was a much pure expression of your brain. Yeah, definitely. And it was really, it was really exciting. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write a book was that I'd been working for, at the time, you know, in the time I wrote it, I'd been working for, at last week tonight, and writing to sound like or to, you know, to match the voice of the show and specifically in a lot of times John's speaking voice and mm-hmm. cadence, which was awesome. And I was like, and I'd been doing stand up the whole time, but I was like, you know, I would really like to have a project that is mine that I can, that I can hold in my hand when I'm done and say like, you know, I, I did this and I'm really proud of it. And I think it really reflects me as opposed to the work of a team of me and other writers and other producers and the PAs that, that, you know, brought the equipment and the, the scenic designer that dressed the set and like the carpenters that made that and the studio union studio employees that like build up the set and break it down every week. Like that's so many people. And I wanted something that felt a little more mine. Although obviously like the cover of the book was shot by Mindy Tucker and I forget the name of the designer, but like by the time I saw it, I was like, that looks perfect. So like there are other people. There are other people, but it's, it's the difference of being in a band versus being a solo. Yeah. Your name is the only one on it, which must be much more pressure. If this thing fails, it's, it's all job. Absolutely. Right. They're not going to go like nobody ever goes, well, you know, we didn't give it the, the marketing push or like the PR didn't work quite right. Or yeah, nobody, uh, nobody's like, Oh, that joke at last week tonight didn't land. It's probably Josh's fault. Yeah. Or with a, with a book, you, it, it is the, it's on the author as it should be. Yeah. (laughs) And and so is that scary though? Yeah. It's terrifying. It's so scary. I felt leading up to the, launch i was so exhilarated and so fearful just because like my wife had read the book my parents had read it my agent my editor maybe my manager Mm -hmm. at that point and then like a few friends like i'd had advanced copies that i'd given to a few friends so like all those people are people who are smart and thoughtful and whose opinions i trust but like it's hard to get the most it's hard to feel like the people that I love the most would be like, dude, you, this suck. They're all obviously on Team Josh, but like, yeah. I mean, also, you know, in a sense, like those are your kind of most personal critics. Like, yes. Especially your mom and your parents, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. My my wife and my mom and my dad were, were all like really amazing readers. And I, I gave it to them both for like accuracy yeah. and sensitivity purposes before I sent it. Oh, oh, shout out to one other super funny writer who's not a stand-up comedian, but an essayist is Samantha Arby, whose book, um, who, who's just wonderful. She has yeah. a, a new book coming out, but like I read early this year, um, after I'd handed in my first draft, I read, um, we're never meeting in real life. And it's just like, God damn. <laughs> like, I feel like we should, I feel like I have written this book. We should have a syllabus for this episode. <laughs> I truly like, I love, there's nothing I love more yeah. than like recommending things yeah. that I love. And like by people that I like to, it's just like, uh, with stand, I mean, like, cause I feel there's so much stand up now and there's so many ways to watch it and places to go, but like to, I, I get a lot of pleasure from being like, oh, here's a stand up special that like maybe is like a little under the radar mm. of like 
you know, Amy Schumer had a special it's not this like year. And it's like, yes, not Nanette, <laughs> or not like when Chappelle releases yeah. two specials yeah. at once, like everybody's aware. Was there anything that you were particularly nervous about your wife or parents reading? Because uh, it is a personal book. Yeah. I had hoped that they would feel that my portrayals of yeah. them were fair and generous. And so it wasn't like stuff that I was worried about them learning about me, although there was stuff that like my parents hadn't heard before. But I just didn't want them to feel like I was exploiting mm. our relationship for like professional gain in in a way that felt that they felt like misrepresented them. There was nothing though that you were nervous putting down on paper that you felt was, you know, perhaps like too personal. A little bit with my parents, yeah. but I from doing stand up I have lost a lot of that kind of like sure. sh- parental shame. And you know where the lines are now. Yeah. Because you probably tested them a bit. Yeah. And I mean, like, there's lots, I, they've seen me say lots of stuff. Yeah. But it, and it's like, at this point, it's my job. And so, like, I, as long as they are not hurt by it, um, I don't mind them like hearing things that are like a little uncomfortable. And with my wife, I'm like, I even with stand up, I'm very, I try to be very like in tune with her about whether I'm saying things on stage that she would feel like misrepresents her. Do you, and, do you run jokes by her before? Yeah, you, yeah. 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 Or like, if not before the first time, I will go, Oh, you know, I'd worked at this thing and I tried it and I think it's gonna, I, I, like, do you, how do you feel about this? Has she ever been like, eh, it's a, that's a little, that's a little too personal. There are things – not too personal, yeah. but it, there are things that she's been like, oh, I don't know that I'm like that. And sometimes she said that in ways that are like totally fine where she's been – like I have a joke about going to bed at night and uh, the, the joke is about how she reads books and I just scroll on my phone yeah. before we go to bed. But it makes it seem in the joke she falls asleep. She closes her book and falls asleep, which is not fully accurate. Uh, she takes longer to fall asleep than I do. Um, but she was like, she, the point of it is just, she reads a book and I scroll on my phone. I love that's the worst thing you could think to say about your wife. But it's, but she said, but this was <laughs> yeah. like very easy. Like this, this but, was pragmatic. Yes. Yeah. It was just changed to make, to make the, to heighten that contrast of like, she improves her brain and I, uh, soak mine in poison. Every she was punching your dinner. joke up a little bit for you. It sounds like. Well, she said, she goes, I don't know if I'm, if she's like, I don't know that that's exactly what I'm like, but I don't think she had a problem with it, even though it was a little inaccurate. Whereas I had another joke where I, it didn't last very long in part because it, it didn't always work great. It like it, it, this line got thinned out of the joke, but it's about us knowing stuff that just that the other one cares about. Like, I know all this stuff that she cares about a lot because yeah. I care about her thoughts and opinions, even when the topic isn't like visceral to me. Mm-hmm. And so I, the, the impulse was to be generous, right? Like I was like, this isn't just stuff that I learned from her. Cause I didn't want to portray her as like a person who nags like that. That was never the intent of the joke. It was to be like, she has these like artistic interests and these professional yeah. interests that I, Things you wouldn't seek out on your own. I wouldn't seek out, but I know a lot about them. And so I tried to flip it and be like, uh, here are things that I care about that she wouldn't necessarily care about Mm -hmm. if it, if it weren't for me. And I think she felt like I was the second part of that where I was actually trying to be like, you know, it goes both ways and we communicate things to each other. I think she felt like the things that I picked for that joke were like not, things they were things that like she would be aware of anyway and and I, it, she was never like don't tell that and she but i could tell when she heard me do it she would be like 
well, I know what that is. You know, like she just felt like it was inaccurate and it melted out of the joke. And the joke is like both better for it pacing wise. And like, I'm happy to not say the thing that makes her feel like, Hey, once you get all this press about being the, the nicest guy in comedy, obviously like that's the thing that like comes up in the first it's like, very sweet paragraph. Is that a lot to live up to? Yeah. It's, um, it's a lovely reputation to yeah. have, it, but it's also, I also try to be like a rounded human. I'm not Mr. Rogers. In that, like, there are things in my book about me, like, yelling at a guy, you know, telling a guy on the street, like, to fuck off. He did have those sleeve tats, though, we all know, Mr. Rogers, <laughs> after fighting a nom. Yeah, 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 those are sick. It was weird that one, they, that they, he had on both forearms, Guy Fieri's face. <laughs> but, like, before hey, Guy Fieri. Before yeah. Guy Fieri. Yeah, he was just, a, you know, he was, it was just, like, a prophecy. Smash Mouth Guy and Guy Fieri yeah. on each arm. And if you relaxed your eyes, they would appear to switch arms. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I try not to set for myself or accept a standard that like I am always nice and I'm always gentle because that's, I think, not reasonable and not who I am. Did you feel like you need to sort of like go out of your way to tell some of the stories of you not being super nice? I, it, I, that's an interesting question. I felt like they were important to the arc of the book. I, it wasn't like I had something to prove, but I sure. think like a book about like, look at how nice I am is a very boring book. Yeah. And I think like a book about kind of like struggling with that and figuring out how to raise concerns and voice displeasure and, and engage in confrontation is always the, the story that I was interested in telling. So it wasn't like I was like, well, I hope people think this about me, but th- those stories like that were important to the book from its conception i love reading stories about failure i think that's just the most interesting topic yeah you can only really write it if you are successful right totally i i think yes i think that's absolutely true like nobody wants to hear about someone who has only failed or right because then there's no there's no ballast to it it's not a self-help book but it's 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 really nice to sort of like tell those stories and impart them on people to let people know that like yeah like every single person nobody has the career or the life they thought they were going to have yeah everybody at some point in their life has tried to kind of model it off of someone else and when you don't hit those exact notes and you do kind of feel like a failure yeah it's stressful and it's painful and i think like my life has been on the uh spectrum of lives uh very fortunate yeah. and devoid of many of the worst things that can happen to people thus far but it's still like i think it's important to acknowledge the whole package like i think that to me i feel like you know people get it i say like it's annoying when someone's positive which i don't think is true i think it's annoying when someone is positive um in ignorance of reality rather than like defiance of it (laughs) do you know what i mean like i think that there's like that optimism like real optimism isn't ignoring that bad things exist it's like acknowledging that bad things exist and like trying to seize on the parts that can be improved and the things the hope that is there and that's like really something i tried to weave into the book because like i'm nice things are okay it's like not a compelling thesis and it's not fun to write about this does sort of get back to that idea though of of processing things this is kind of a good opportunity for you to go back and go through them and, and, and revisit them and kind of, you know, be a little more analytical than you're able to be in the moment. Totally. It was a really fun 
and challenging opportunity to like frack my own brain yeah. to be like, why am I like this? <laughs> Did you figure out the answer to that? I think I got close in a bunch of places. I think I had, I found some valuable insights or like, what is the proof for the way I perceive myself? There's, there's like a couple things that weren't, that didn't even make the book that like this one story that didn't end up being super, uh, hard hitting as yeah. a story, I feel like has such a, an interesting insight about who I am. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the guy I am is, uh, when we were like 14, almost 15. So it was like, my friends were 14, mm-hmm. 15. It was, uh, Y2K. And we set up this computer to like do some kind of repeating task, hoping that it would crash at midnight. And when it obviously didn't, we were really mad and frustrated. We were like, this is, this stinks. This isn't what yeah. we wanted at all. So we decided to throw this computer off a bridge <laughs> and then, me being me, I was like, well, we can't just throw it off a bridge that's littering. We have to like write messages to the future and then it's a time capsule yeah. and then we can throw it off yeah. the bridge and, and it's a much more sympathetic case if we get caught. So we did that and I was like, oh yeah, that's who I am. Like I'm the like rule follower, the cautious person that, that like is trouble adjacent and like kind of an enabler, but like really wants to like dot the I's and cross the T's. You're the guy at the punk show in the back of the room with his arms crossed. Yeah, that's me. You're at the punk show. That's always me. Yeah, Yeah. I'm at the show. I'm having a good time. (laughs) I might have a couple beers now that I'm of legal age. Uh, And like another friend told me this story that that I was like, uh, I was like not horrified, but I was like shocked that I did this, but I also believed it was that we were at a friend's house. We were visiting New York City when we were in college. I was probably 20. And my friend's dad had been a producer I was a television producer and he had two Emmys, I think daytime Emmys maybe. And our, my, our, the two other friends that we were there were taking pictures holding them. We cleared it with our, with our friend we were staying mm-hmm. with and they were taking pictures and they said, do you want to take a picture with this? And I said, Oh no, thank you. I, I would feel weird. I didn't earn that. And that's like, it's just like a weird New England puritanism that I didn't realize how embedded that was in me. That, that when my friend, my friend texted me about that a couple of years ago, I was like, do you remember this? And I was like, wow, yeah, yes, that is how I would have felt then. Were you actually soliciting stories from people? Were you asking them for like help in writing these pieces about you? I didn't ask for stories, but I did reach out to people for like fact checks and stuff. Yeah. Like I, I, was there anything that you completely misremembered? There were, there was nothing that I blew that badly. Yeah. There were things that I was like, oh, right, this is what precipitated that. My mom had like a couple little like accuracy notes, some of which were like really helpful and some of which I was like, oh yeah, I left that out because it's a boring part and you don't write your life in, you know, every word of your life in chronological order. But like there were, there was, it was very helpful to like gut check for accuracy with my parents, a couple childhood friends. So, and, and some of it though, I was just like, well, this is how I remember it happening. And that, and I'm not like throwing anybody under mm-hmm. the bus. So like, I will write my memory of it because that's how it is significant to me. It's significant in as far as like, this is the impact I remember it having. I suspect that you're like me from the standpoint of you always remember it worse for yourself than it actually was. Oh yeah. You, you probably don't project yourself as being more of a hero than no, you actually definitely were in any not. situation. No. I remember myself as like, like more of like a queasy wet blanket. Yeah. Um, yes, that's for sure. And, but I was like, it was less about like my role in things and more about like, how did this happen? Was, am I remembering this story right? And there's like, there were a few things that like just, you know, I, I asked for detail, not Mm -hmm. for like full narrative 
shifts or and i didn't like put out a call of like what was interesting that we've ever done although i definitely thought about doing that getting back to that that sort of first idea we're talking about about how difficult it can be to write for news because you're kind of like inhabiting that mind space um you know i feel like for me like going back and writing a book like this would be like you know looking at my old yearbooks or like looking at my bar mitzvah photos or something like things that are just like hurt me inside it's just so it's so difficult for me to it's hard for me to read something i wrote like a a month ago for sure let alone like revisit my adolescence yeah i didn't end up doing a ton of like deep divey stuff because again it was like i wanted to write what feels significant now and like there were certain points where i went back where i was definitely like i could have done more of that kind of Mm -hmm. like uh personal excavation but I really – my mindset was like I'm not a reporter reporting on my own life. I'm telling this story as like it feels like it happened. And and I want to get the accuracy right. But I also am like, oh, I'm not going to deep dive into yeah. myself in a documentary way because like one, I don't know how much it will yield. And two, it's like I don't really need – I'm not really trying to like shake loose – forgotten stories i'm trying to be like here is the path that i feel like i've been on you didn't feel like you're using this for therapy i didn't no but it maybe had that effect to some degree of it, it was re-examining re- things yeah i think uh, talking about it and like talking about even more now now that people are reading yeah. it and like talking to me people from my life are talking to me about it my great aunt barbara was at my boston book launch event and Your my great aunt still around yeah it's amazing oh yeah i have a couple yeah. great aunts i have one wow my my Great aunt says, I think I can say this on the vlog. My great aunt says is 95. And, uh, she's like just hearty like, New England stock. Yeah. She's wonderful. She's a real trip. She's so funny. And like, she, we gave her two copies of my book and I, I made one out to her and we gave her an extra copy because I think someone that lived in her retirement community wanted one. And that person either already had one or there was a miscommunication. And then she, so she, I gave her one and she sold the second one for $12, which is below retail. <laughs> and then she found, she was like, where do I get another copy? And I was like, I'll have my mom and dad send you one. And she was like, oh, no, no, I found it online. And it's like, at 95, that's like incredible. Yeah. But my great aunt Barbara was at my book event. Like, uh, and she's, she's younger. And, um, I said something like, um, about how I started doing stand-up or at, at age 19, uh, which is, like, true. Uh, that's, like, when I, you know, I performed a couple times at, like, live shows. But, like, when I was 19, I was like, I'm going to go start doing stand-up comedy. And uh, she said, she raised her hand and she said, more of a comment than a question. And I said, you're the only person in this room or this world that I would let do this. Yeah. And she said, uh, you started at age three. And I told this story of, uh, it reminded me of the story of me telling her a joke, like a, a street joke at age three. Um like a long joke that my must have been from my mom or dad. Probably my, my dad had told me this joke and I was sharing it with her and I got distracted by an ant as it crawled by and my dad had to tap me and go, Hey, and I go, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the chicken says book, book, book to the librarian. And it's like, <laughs> you know, still like impressive, even with that, that slight aside that you had to touch in it. I was pretty three. good. Yeah. That's pretty good. Not my finest material. Sure. Uh, and I've never, you know, delivery has never really been that's high quality three-year-old material though yeah oh it's it's a long it was like a whole yeah you know it was a joke with three beats and the yeah the chicken comes back to the library and goes and meets a frog in a swamp it was like one of those norm mcdonald jokes where it's just like but it does it pays off it had like a very legible payoff that you're like that's the joke whereas norm is like you know the 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 long walk is the thing there is sort of a switch over in your life where 
when, when you're, when you're younger, it's really, it's just kind of the act of like of feeling like you have the superpower of being able to make adults laugh. Mm-hmm. Like that in and of itself is enough to tell the jokes or like going back and watching something that you watched as a kid that you really enjoyed. You knew there were jokes. You didn't necessarily know what the jokes yeah, were. Yeah. 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 Just sort of like understanding pacing, setup, delivery. That was almost enough as a kid. Yes, for sure. Like the, the, um, veneer of jokes is enough for like doing an impression, even if it's not like a funny impression, right? Just like reciting the words and like trying for the voice was like very funny. I would do that a lot. I'm curious if your interactions when you were a preschool teacher, if your interactions with those kids had any sort of lasting impact on you as a performer. That could be true. I mean, I, for a long time, was telling a lot of preschool stories on stage. Yeah. And so it was kind of this scaffolding for my career when I was not as strong a writer, I would have these empirically funny things to talk about, just like these sweet, charming kids. And I would tell stories and then I would increasingly like write into the story. So like it, it became less about like kids said funny thing, more about like this funny thing happened. Here are my observations about it. But it was really like super helpful to be living a life where like I didn't have to go like, you know, my thoughts on the government or yeah. like my thoughts on dating, I could be like, here are some things that happened and they're funny and interesting. When was it clear that comedy was something you could do professionally? I, so by the time I was out of college, I was doing it like at a very low level professionally in terms of like, I was getting paid sometimes to do it. And I was doing mostly around New England and was getting booked more and more consistently, but like wasn't making a lot of money. I was kind of like the lowest rung of like, not I was not headlining. I was like the the middle act mm-hmm. on a three person show. Uh, by the time I was like, I'd started teaching. But then I had this. Uh, very fortunately, did really well at this comedy festival competition in Atlanta, the Laughing Skull, which I think is not a competition mm. anymore. But like, or maybe it is. Who knows? Uh, no, it probably is. <laughs> I'm thinking of a different thing. But like that kind of like going there and seeing people from all over the country. And doing well and, like, winning this festival in 2010 was really helpful. And I, like, was going out on the road a little bit. I had a college agent who would send me out for gigs at schools, which, like, you know, they were paying $1,200, $1,300. And I had to book, pay for travel out of that and then kept above yeah. that. And, like, that to me was, like, an unfathomable amount of money to make telling jokes. Even when I was, like, well, realistically, I'm going to Shreveport, Louisiana, so I'm paying for, like, cabs soon from the airport, uh, flight hotel for one night, uh, food while I'm away. But I was like, you know, if I'm netting $600 on this or, or $800 on this or $900, that's like, wow. Uh, it was like really thrilling. So I, that was the kind of, that kind of made me go, you know, maybe I could do more of this at a, at a level that's like kind of beyond what I am currently, the bigger than the pond I'm currently swimming in. And, and I'd had friends from Boston and from other places that were like, Getting on TV, doing these, you know, getting booked for the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, which is a very big deal. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of stuff wasn't happening for me as much from Boston. And so at first I think I was like, well, I'm not ready to do anything else, like, because I'm not getting these kind of external signifiers that like, yep, you're, you're doing things, kid. But then this was kind of the first one that I was like, you know what? Maybe there is something to this. And so I did that. And like a year and a half later, I'd moved to, New York, just with the idea that like, okay, I'll stop teaching full time. I'll tutor to make ends meet. I'll do stand up on the road or and in New York if as, as much as I can get booked at the time. And then like, I had started doing a little freelance writing, like just as I was moving. And so I was like, okay, may, we'll, we'll try this out. I'll try this out. I'll see how it goes. I'm like, 
maybe there's a chance that I can have a career in this instead of just like a comedy career that is supplemental income and I will have like a teaching career or some other kind of career. Because I was also coming up against, as a teacher, I was like, teachers don't get paid very much. And I was like, this is going to be hard. I was like, am I going to try to marry rich? Like, what's my end game here? (laughs) And so I was starting to feel like as I was getting towards my mid to late 20s, how do I make this work long term? Like, I'll, I, you know, I had several roommates and it's not like when you're working in pre-K, you make partner and then all of a sudden you're earning $80,000 a year. How close did you come to just giving it up and just doing the office job or, or teaching full time? I was, I think before the Laughing Skull Festival in 2010, so I'd been teaching for three years full time. That's when I had kind of really been like, okay, do I commit? Do I like go all in and go, this is what I do every year and everything else is on the side? Or do I like go back to grad school and become that was like my thought i was like i really like working in education i feel like it's an important field and like maybe there's a way i can be helpful you know some kind of like higher ed position or education policy that was like something i was considering i would not like leaving comedy entirely but like it would moonlight doing comedy did you give yourself a timeline no No. i never i never did but then in 2010 i i had I was going out on the road a little more, which was taking me away from the classroom a little bit. And then my, my boss there was very generous, uh, to kind of like, let me dip out one day or two a month to do something like that, to do, to go on the road, do a college gig or whatever. And then they, it was a year on program, but I took the summers off. I think the last two years I was there and, and they were very generous about that. And it kind of let the hours go to people that wanted more hours over the summer when enrollment was lower. By the middle of the summer of 2010, I was like, okay. I'm going to move in a year. And so I like made it a point to try to save a little bit better, try to like really think about like how to position myself for this, like to achieve this kind of like exit velocity from full-time work in education. Are you still able now that you've been doing this for, for a while and you've achieved success in, uh, you know, numerous different aspects of it, are you still able to kind of tap into that early feeling of touring and just be able to, step outside and look at it and just appreciate that people pay you to do this. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's very thrilling. I think there, I, my tolerance, my, it, it takes a little more. My tolerance is a little higher <laughs> than it used to be. Yeah. So, you know, there are nights where I'm like, I can't believe they only paid me this much. To yeah, do it this. still feels like a job. Some, but, some days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a great lyric by, in a song with a hold steady, mm. It's film. It's about film as an allegory for being in a van. I think is that that's the, um, the slapped ass one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the line is sometimes it's just entertainment, and some yeah. other nights it's work. And I yeah. just like, whoo, yeah. The scene and like what people need and like misfortune befalling people and like art for art's sake. It's just like that line. Sometimes it's just entertainment, and some other nights it's work. Like there are nights where I'll get off stage. At, at the cellar at New York Comedy Club and collect like spot pay, you know, on a weeknight, 25 bucks and be, or 50 bucks or whatever and be like, wow, like what a cool, this was so fun. And I got to watch my, some of my favorite comedians and, and got to tell jokes and this new thing is really coming together and like what a joy and, and, and being on the road. I'm like, man, I can't believe people, I did this show in, wherever and like i did you know i did a tuesday night in philly and however many people came out and like the room was pretty full and like it's just tiny little room and people came to see me and like some people bought books afterwards and they were there on purpose and like what a joy and what a gift and 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 i i really feel that and it's also i think some of it is just like having it being intentional about 
feeling gratitude and expressing gratitude. And some of it is also like stand up is the thing that I do on, you know, it is like still I do it because I like it, not because it pays me a lot of money. There you go. That was Josh Gondelman. His new book, Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results, is out now on Harper Perennial. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to you, the listener, for being the listener. If you enjoy the program, there are a number of ways to support RIYL. You can rate and review us on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's our rwellcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rwellcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all your r-i-y-l related information and that's about all we got for this week so stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of r-i-y-l